Hello, world, and welcome back to the third episode of First Money In, the podcast for knowledge seekers and risk takers. In this exciting episode, your intrepid hosts, Jonathan, Brandon, and I, Muhan, dive in first with this exciting movement, this new revolution in software, the no-code, low-code movement. What happens when everyone and their mother can be a software engineer and build the future of technology? From there, we dive into the future of fundraising. Should venture capitalists be on the run and an exclusive debut of two exciting new news from your co-host, Jonathan. And finally, the three of us as co-hosts take a moment, go to the hum human side of our existences, and share an intimate conversation about what's been going on in the Asian American community. Make sure to stick all the way till the end to hear our winners and losers in content. And now, without further ado, on to the podcast. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the First Money In podcast, the podcast for knowledge seekers and risk takers. Every other week, we come together to explore recent events in the world of startups, finance, politics, and the business world around us. I'm your host, Jonathan Lacoste, aka The Spaceman. And as always, I'm joined by my two illustrious co-hosts, Muhan Jung, aka The Operative, Mr. COO himself, and Brandon Smooth Jazz Bryant. Always cool, calm, and collected. How are we doing, gentlemen? I think those nicknames are starting to stick. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Let's <credit>. go. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. definitely good, man. I, I appreciate that. Gentlemen. Well, it is oh. certainly an uh, exciting time. First day of spring. Spring is upon us here as uh, we transition uh, into Daylight a new season. Savings. It's always nice. Mm -hmm. Daylight savings time uh, behind us. So... As always, uh, we're excited for the podcast today. We've got an incredibly exciting episode ahead. But before we jump in, just want to remind everyone, thank you so much again for the continued feedback. Uh, this is the third episode of our inaugural season of the First Money In podcast. Um, if you want to follow along and you're not already, please go to firstmoneyin.co.co or search for First Money In podcast on the Substack. Uh, subscribe to us on those platforms and give us a follow on Spotify. You'll be the first to know when a new pod drops and in the future when we have surprised guest appearances. So with that, let's jump into today's pod. And Muhan, I'm going to pass it over to you for our first exciting topic. Gentlemen, it's been such an exciting week and I'm so excited to kick us off. Um, so Zapier, the low-code automation integration platform, has acquired no-code educational platform MakerPad for an undisclosed amount of money, but we can probably estimate a few million dollars. So that just happened in the last week. And uh, before we go into it, I, I want to give a little bit of a setup for our listeners and, and set the stage for us to discuss because no-code, low-code is, uh, is, is a very Im Im impassioned, very somewhat subversive movement going on in software. So I want to uh, give you guys a little bit of a setup before we go into it. So Building software without code has been the fantasy, the, the fantasy and the dream of nerds for decades. Uh, but personally, I, in my life, I think also for us here on the pod in our age group, to me, Squarespace really was the modern start of this wave of the no-code, low-code movement. So I don't know if you guys remember, but in the early 2010s, wake of financial crisis, suddenly Squarespace is on every podcast <laughs> with their advertisements. Um, and eventually it kind of crystallizes into this build it beautiful brand. So the reason why Squarespace was a big deal 
was because they were really trying to disrupt WordPress. WordPress powers 40% of the internet. And what Squarespace had really done was um, train the market to ask for more specifically with a beautiful, native, what you see is what you get oftentimes called WYSIWYG website designer. So you can even see the impacts of that kind of elevating of the market because now WordPress, uh, I think released Gutenberg a few years ago. Wix is building out Velo. MailChimp, kind of the 500 pound gorilla has always had their really friendly uh, drag and drop interface. So that's what you're seeing going on on just the website side, right? A website is a fairly low, kind of a low stakes uh, business asset, so to speak. So at the same time that, that, uh, that, that zap uh, that sorry Squarespace and uh, Squarespace and WordPress were going out. Um, you actually had these even more ambitious entrepreneurs who wanted to do what Squarespace was doing for websites for really serious enterprise applications. So you had Zapier, Bubble, Airtable, Notion, all being started around the same time. So retrospectively, uh, respectively, that's 2011, 2012, 2012, and 2013. And so today, roughly a decade later, right? It's 2021. We are starting to see that these super ambitious entrepreneurs at the time were totally right. So now you're seeing digital native millennials entering the workforce, Luddites starting to retire, and just workers in aggregate becoming much more comfortable adopting these very sophisticated but point-and-click coding technologies. So where that leads us today is Zapier, this company has only raised $1.3 million, is valued at $5 billion. That's an insane amount of money to have like with very, very low outside equity uh, injection. Notion's at 2 billion, Airtable's at 5.7 billion. And even for me as an independent creator in my business, I constantly heavily leverage Airtable and Zapier. They probably reduce the need for me to have kind of normal and traditional colleagues. So, and I know in the second portion of this, we'll actually dive a little bit more in as well. But in addition to Zapier having raised very little outside money, a bubble was bootstrapped for seven years before they just raised their $6.25 million round last year. So uh, to say that there's what these platforms themselves demonstrate is that now the democratization of tools to build real applications and real businesses uh, has become financially legitimate, right? And, and, and to say that this is actually the beginning, there's probably still many of our listeners who don't know what Airtable is, don't know what Notion is. I have actually never used Notion, though. All my friends have talked to me about it. But they themselves are running a business that is making it easier to make things. And then them on the financial side, we'll, we'll cover that section too, um, are just, it's such an incredible time to have a vision and to build things. So I'll, I'll open up the table. Brendan, I'll turn it to you first, um, because especially from the venture side and what you're seeing, what kind of um, deal flow you're analyzing. My input was that for a while, these low-code, no-code providers actually faced institutional skepticism. They were like, oh, who's going to use this? Is this actually enterprise-ready? So how do you make sense of this movement? Do you think it's venture-backable? What do you think we're going to start seeing more in the coming years? Yeah, uh, I mean, thanks for the the good rundown there. I would put these kind of low-code, no-code tools into that like future of work and productivity bucket. like the easiest way to think about them, they're essentially democratizing the ability for folks who don't have an engineering background or don't have the technical knowledge to write code to be able to build web and kind of like mobile applications. You mentioned some of my favorite tools, like Squarespace, like my personal website is on Squarespace. Airtable is like Excel on steroids, Zapier with the automation. And then even Notion is like this new catch-all for like notes. And you can make a Notion that's a website um, and I think about them from like a growth perspective of how they can go from 
the consumer side, but also to the enterprise side, uh, very different from your typical enterprise software that has a bunch of sales executives are doing commercials, selling stuff on Instagram and Facebook, et cetera. These folks are growing usually through what's called like word of mouth or product-led growth, where the product itself has a use case of shareability. You mentioned how all these companies kind of started in 2013. I have another key example from 2013, which is Calendly. Um, yes. Anyone who knows Calendly, it's the share link to automatically uh, book a meeting on someone's calendar. And previously, it took five, six, seven emails, a lot of back and forth, a lot of just like brain draining. And now with Calendly, you can simply just send a link. Someone can book time on there. And even though that person doesn't have a Calendly, um, I guess like a Calendly account themselves, they get a chance to experience that value change, right? Like, wow, I booked a meeting with somebody in one email. <laughs> How much easier could this be in my life? And so what I would think from like someone who's building in this space, or at least Calendly perspective, there's a percentage of people who convert off of links. So then you can start predicting after like six or 12 months of some type of uh, data collection, you can start predicting revenue the right way, right? And it's all about links shared. So you need to make sure that it's easy as possible to have links shared and you can spend all your marketing dollars and time there instead of actually spending them on um, storytelling for Super Bowl ads or putting a ton of money into sales folks. And as I mentioned, Calendly was started in 2013. They raised $600,000 for that first seven years and they just raised $350 million at a $3 billion valuation. Black male founder, not in San Francisco, he is in Atlanta. So I think overall this movement is, I think it's good for the tech ecosystem, right? Because now you're um, equipping people who probably were not in that like business or commerce space. Maybe they're a sole entrepreneur or a small business owner and you're giving them these superpowers so that they don't have to hire these people uh, to get the business off the ground. And with all these new people entering the market, I would assume there's new needs, there's new problems, there's new wants, and smart people are going to start building technology and applications for those new needs and those new wants, that white space, if you will. And that just means that it's going to just push innovation. Like pushing innovation is literally democratizing opportunity for people to participate in the space, like, right? Like technology startups, I would say is like the, the next industrial revolution. So these low code and no code tools are given the opportunity for those folks who aren't typically in Silicon Valley to uh, kind of jump on board. So I do think it is a venture backable space. I think it's just, you need to look at different kind of unit economics, metrics and usage. So at the earliest stages, it's gonna be a team bet and a vision bet. But as you get to that year, four, five, six, seven, uh, there'll be a lot more kind of numbers and revenue that you can kind of dig in on. Uh, so for us from Harlem Capital, we're definitely taking a look at the space, uh, but we're more focused on um, the vision and also the founding team. So glad you brought up Tope, by the way. I think just such an amazing example of Black excellence in entrepreneurship. He's the Calendly founder originally from Nigeria as well. Um, and so it's just an incredible story and, and we need more um, unicorn startups that are obviously started by uh, black individuals, uh, people of color in general. 
I think one clarifying point I want to make on no code, low code, and then I am super excited about this topic. Um, and I want to I want to approach it from the operator standpoint. So how does a startup think about scaling a low code, no code company, and what are the implications of that? So one clarifying point is that low code and no code are actually two very similar but separate groups of technologies that have slowly begun to merge. So it's kind of one big bucket, but they had two different origins. Mm. So low code solutions are for development teams, software engineer teams that allow them to click and drag and build software applications more quickly without having to write hundreds of lines of code repetitively, you know, simple instructions or steps that they would normally be writing as part of a script for every single um, release that they were doing. So low code solutions allow them to be uh, way more efficient. And in particular, one of the best examples is um, Snapchat and Pokemon Go when they launched. Uh, normally, engineering teams have massive what's called DevOps teams. Uh, but both of those companies, Pokemon Go and Snapchat, actually automated all of their DevOps through um, low-code solutions that Google provides as part of their Google Cloud business. So that's an example for how an engineering team can become much more efficient. On the no-code side of things, that is typically aimed at your non-technical business user, especially in sales and especially in marketing, product marketing, web design. Uh, no-code solutions, uh, many of the ones that you both mentioned, are perfect for building websites really simply, building landing pages and surveys, building mobile apps without having to code an entire custom backend. Those are the types of solutions that allow someone to get up and running very quickly. So what's the implication of this? Well, as you've seen over the last decade, those solutions have grown very quickly, but very organically. And I want to go back to something you said, Brandon, because I think it's really important. Early on, part of the reason that you on the venture side are probably making a bet on the founder and the team and the vision is because I find that for no-code, low-code solutions, the founder has to have an incredibly detailed and nuanced understanding of the pain that the customer feels that they're solving for. The elegance in no-code solutions a lot of the time is in how simply someone can use the solution from a product standpoint. It's not necessarily the, the audacity of the vision or how big or bold it can be. It's quite simply taking manual steps as part of a old school legacy enterprise solution or tying four or five things together that used to be cumbersome as part of an enterprise IT process. And how do you simplify it either for that small business owner, entrepreneur that's trying to get up and running as quickly as possible or for that enterprise that wants to take that six month roadmap and squeeze it into six days. So this no-code, low-code movement starts with just having an exceptional understanding of your customer. Now, how do you scale that? One of the things you mentioned, Brandon, that I think is really fascinating is the PLG movement, product-led growth. And so enterprise software companies in, gen in general, uh, historically, have grown from executives and sales reps selling to executives at other companies and going top-down. So you would sell to a CMO or a VP of IT or a director. What the low-code, no-code movement did, though, was that because the end users were also the ones that could get up and running so quickly, it enabled them to start trying the products and solutions as part of this demand gen model where you, you try it as part of a freemium trial or you allow someone to just get started, very similar to Slack. And then suddenly, hundreds of individuals at your company are using these solutions, and then you can go bottoms up as part of a sales process. So that has had really big implications, both in terms of how startups go to market. You know, do we create easy to use no code solutions that allow for users at the bottom of an organization to test it and then scale up? 
do we offer a freemium solution? And also in this new COVID remote world, uh, remote work world, I think this is only going to accelerate because the type of collaboration and productivity tools and workflows you will need by the very nature of remote work have to be more automated and seamless instead of sitting in a conference room and being able to have some of the in-person conversations that now need to be automated through these solutions. So I'm incredibly bullish on not only the past decade of no-code and low-code, but I think you're going to see more parts of the enterprise and the technology stack continue to be consumed by these seemingly easy to get up and running and fast-growing businesses. Could not. I mean, guys, I, I, bars. as you can imagine, <laughs> absolutely bars. So passionate about this. Uh, I've had many of my subscribers and readers ask me how I run my things, right? And so I show them my workflow. I show, hey, um, if someone wants me to analyze a startup, they fill out a request for startups form. It has 50 different fields, all built on Airtable. They submit the form. It goes into a giant queue. And then I go in and I try to figure out what other information is missing. Oh, I don't know where the team is based. Oh, I don't know if they're pre-revenue post-product. Oh, I don't understand. Are they really a... Um, a shipping company? Are they really a mobility company? Are they really a hardware company? Whatever have you. And then when that post is done in Airtable, I use a Zapier integration that then pulls from Airtable and pushes it to Medium and my own website. And it automatically formats it into a, into a, like a pre-formatted, beautiful, very simple template. Now, obviously, most of my writing can't always be in that format. But for the idea that my business solves rich people problems, my customers want me. <laughs> no, it totally is. Uh, right? You got to own it. Uh, my customers want me to very quickly, very efficiently give my two my two cents on private startups are raising money online. And so for that ability, for me as one individual person, I actually I actually even mooch off my readers even more because I asked them to fill out the form that I would also be filling out, right? This workflow of a decentralized organization across time zones. I have customers in seven different time zones. I'm just a dude in an apartment, <laughs> right? Like taking payments across different continents. I'm so, so excited for this. And I even, you know, just um, one last thing about this before we push on, the culture of an org, I think is really going to be the biggest limiting reactant here. When I was working uh, in politics, I came in with the, our startup culture. Like all the stuff I used, you guys would totally use it. Asana, Airtable, Google Cloud Apps, 1Password from the very first day, right? No one mm -hmm. is putting a password onto a piece of paper. Um, but really the politicos who joined the campaign, either one, they were like, this is the future. I'm going to get in line and learn how to use Zapier like Muhan is, beep, boop, beep, boop. Or this is what you had much more often, Oh, we don't use that. Oh, let me give you a phone call. Oh, no, let's like have endless useless meetings that have zero agendas or outcomes, just so much mediocrity. And the cultural portion of it really like in that culture battle, that culture battle is real. That culture battle is very, very real because then from the work side, you have, oh, I value my productivity on the organization by my outputs and results. So if I leave at 5 p.m., that's not my problem, right? That's not that's your problem if you can't get your work done on time. But then for other people, it becomes a virtue signaling of, oh, well, we value our work by how much time we grind until 9 p.m. at night. This it, The culture world is so real and so it, it induced so much misery. And so to see this side, you know, to be on the winning side of history, 
Um, I'm very, very excited to see it. I know this ties into finance. I love it how seems- you said you're going to be on the winning side of history. <laughs> Guys, we are the winning side of history. <laughs> Brandon, before before you and I jump in with serious comments, I feel like, I don't know if you've seen those memes on uh, Twitter or TikTok where they talk about like, hey, sex is great, but have you ever had Notion connect into your Zapier, connect into your Calendly <laughs> link? That's that's exactly how Muhan sounds right now. Oh he's just God. gushing. He's so excited about this, which, I mean, it's fantastic. It's amazing, but it's like magic. <laughs> it truly is. It truly is. Um, gentlemen, did you want to have any input before we go to the next topic? Well, Brandon, one thing that I, I think is really interesting is um, I don't think it is a uh, coincidence that many of these no-code uh, businesses grew so organically as well. And I think this is going to transition incredibly nicely into our next topic, but maybe let's spend a minute on, you know, these businesses have been able to bootstrap off of just a few hundred thousand or a few million dollars very early on. And um, it's quite disruptive to the venture business when you aren't, um, you know, continuing to invest in these super high growth, very profitable, recurring revenue, typically businesses. And one of the reasons I, I think the no-code, low-code, and combined with the PLG go-to-market is so successful is exactly for that purpose. If you are able to grow a business with just a few hundred thousand dollars, that democratizes who can start that business. It also democratizes where they can start the business, and it can democratize who they start the business for, like what customer subset, uh, subsets. You know, if you're not if you're not building just for the Fortune 500s or just for the typical mom and pop shop. But if you're fund, you know, fundraising or sorry, building a business for a really niche audience or one that typically hasn't been venture investable, um, you would have had a harder time to start these businesses. But I think there's such a key connection between understanding your customer so insanely well, building a seamless, generally low cost solution too that allows users to just try before they buy that translating to extremely efficient and profitable growth where you as a company, whether you're Bubble or Notion, don't have to have 50 people on day one. You can be super efficient. Gumroad, we'll talk about in a second. It's one employee still. He's doing 10 million in revenue and Sahil is the only employee. So (laughs) I'm just excited by what this translates for you, Brandon, on the venture side in terms of finding these teams early on, but also for the um, equity and democratization of startups and who can start these companies. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I, I won't, because uh, I know we're about to jump right into the future of, of funding in general. I mean, this is just from a person who's focused on people of color and women and just democratizing opportunity. This is a super exciting space because now the, the folks who are stuck in that culture war, as Muhan said, they can feel more empowered to start a side hustle, to leave the workforce and do something themselves because there's now tech stacks for solo entrepreneurs. And then for the venture capital side of the business, it is hard to, to understand which, which of these companies is gonna be a winner early on. So that means that we just have to do a better job of meeting founders where they are at the earliest stages, build real relationships, understand the pain point as uniquely as they, they do, and uh, start to make bets on people even further in the, um, in the investment process. And one way we're doing that right now, we're, we're building out an angel program where we're working with uh, more diverse check writers to kind of get inserted into their communities, uh, teach them how to uh, evaluate companies, teach them how to be uh, advisors and et cetera, et cetera. But the whole, I think the whole process now is just creating, like I said, that white space and you have smart people who are going to attack and create innovation and solve these these tough problems. And 
hopefully this time it'll be a lot more democratized for folks of color and women and also folks who aren't on the coast. Uh, so I, with that, JL, I know you, you're really excited about the future of uh, fundraising for tech startups. I also, on my side, I think this touches small business quite a bit, but uh, we'll let you take it away with the new SCC regulation. Yeah, I think one of the things that the three of us are all really passionate about is either starting companies and, and projects and side hustles and scaling that or either supporting entrepreneurs uh, through some type of investment vehicle. And what is really clear right now is probably more so than the past 50 years, the fundraising and investment element of starting and growing a business is being disrupted and is evolving more at one time than ever before. So I want to I want to very briefly walk through what this means. So typically when you start a tech startup, the traditional way to do it was there were a handful of folks in Silicon Valley, specifically on Sand Hill Road called venture capitalists. They had raised hundreds of millions of dollars from wealthy LPs, limited partners. Those LPs were typically institutions, endowments, family offices or very wealthy individuals. And those venture capitalists represented those LPs and were able to hand select the best in breed tech startups and invest in them. But they were also the gatekeepers. They were the gatekeepers for which startups were able to be started and which startups never got funding and failed before they could really take off. They were the gatekeepers for kind of the future of technology. They were able to put the the monetary weight behind what the future represented. If you had an amazing idea in the 1980s, insanely difficult to get started and scale that business without the, um, you know, approval of venture capitalists. So how does this relate to today? Well, now if you are starting a business, there are more ways than ever to get funding for that business. And a lot of that has been um, you know, accelerated recently by innovation in the space, but also by changes to regulatory requirements. And there are two that I want to really throw out and, and talk about. The first is um, the, the accreditation laws. So to be an investor in the United States, you have to be what's called an accredited investor. And in order to qualify for this, you have to have at least $200,000 in annual income for two years in a row, or if you're married, $300,000, or have a net worth of a million dollars plus, excluding your primary residence of real estate. So those are pretty high bars for someone to be able to qualify as an angel investor or as an accredited investor. And there are plenty of individuals that are savvy that I know are in their 20s or 30s or, or later that don't reach either of those milestones. And the reason it was set up this way was initially to protect the investor because it was viewed that if you weren't at those thresholds of income or net worth, you may not be savvy enough to understand the risks associated with investing in these types of businesses. Um, but clearly that is not true anymore and that's an outdated system. So it comes the big news. Uh, Last year, at the end of the year, the limit was uh, for what you could raise as part of a crowdfunding platform, as part of a crowdfunding campaign, was increased from $1 million to $5 million. And that has big implications for companies that want to uh, you know, raise from just the crowd, right? Non-accredited investors and accredited investors. The laws around accredited investors still haven't changed. We need to update those but at least the amount has increased from one to five million that you can raise as part of a crowdfunding platform. The secondary evolution we've seen is the rise of what's called solo GPs. So typically, Brandon, you know this best, in your world, uh, when you start a venture capital firm, 
you go on the road and you raise money for six, 12 or 18 months. And early on, it's just a few million bucks and it, and it grows to tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. And you close that money, you close the fund, and then you can start investing from it. There is a rise though of the prominence of individual VCs being their own uh, fund operators. It's called a solo GP, uh, general partner. And so one person individuals are starting rolling funds, which is a new invention uh, a few years ago from AngelList, which allows LPs to invest in venture capital firms on day one for a solo GP to accept checks and write checks at the same time. And it sounds nuanced, but it is disrupting venture capital where you have these high profile entrepreneurs and investors now kind of becoming a one shop venture capital firm. And it's disrupting some of the venture capital firms that maybe haven't been as valuable to startups over the years. So Brandon, I'll pass it over to you because this is obviously the world that you live and operate in, but really exciting time for entrepreneurs that are starting businesses in how they can raise capital, but also for folks that want to jump into the check writing game too. Yeah, this is a, this is a pretty big opportunity for a lot of folks. I'll start with the new SEC regulation that lets you raise uh, $5 million per year from crowdfunding platforms, which is up from 1 million. So that's 5X, that's a, this is a pretty good win for the community. And I think this is big for not only the tech ecosystem, but I do think it's big for potentially uh, small businesses. The one caveat that I have to mention here is that I think this is for folks who have built-in communities, right? Folks who have strong press, folks who have brand loyalty, uh, folks who have this community of folks around them that you would call like stakeholders, like people who kind of live and die by these brands uh, or communities or are mission aligned. Um, and I would say last point about those stakeholders, if they, to make them want to invest, they have to think that there's good upside in the opportunity, right? So I would think about it on three levels. It, it could be big tech, early stage startups, and then your small businesses. From a big tech side, I think now you have the ability of like an Airbnb or DoorDash potentially kind of raise capital from their stakeholders. So now in the future, uh, a similar company to Airbnb collect their host or people who stay at Airbnb 10, 15 times a year, they can put a thousand bucks into it. And imagine if someone put a thousand bucks into Airbnb at a $10 billion valuation pre-IPO. <laughs> Right, because now you're given an opportunity for retail investors to invest in the private markets, and now Airbnb, I look today, is worth 123 billion dollars. So now you take stakeholders, turn them into shareholders, and then you turn them into like evangelists. And Airbnb raising five million dollars <laughs> from whatever few hundred thousand people, water off their back means nothing to them because they probably raised hundreds of millions. So I think that is really good. Early stage startups like Gumroad, as you mentioned, this is really cool because they have built-in communities. This is, could be considered like a Fiverr or uh, Udemy or all these kind of like platforms where it's a marketplace where there's people who come to buy and sell and exchange like-minded ideas. Uh, would also love to kind of buy into the upside of the of the business. So I'm really excited about those. And then the last part that I think that people may be missing, and I've seen this on Republic. Like you can have local coffee shops or restaurants or other businesses that have maybe 10 or 15 locations in a city, have a lot of brand equity, a lot of community members who want to buy into the future of that business. So maybe there's a, a 10 location restaurant in Cleveland that wants to expand to 
across the Midwest. And now you can be a shareholder, you can get free gear, maybe you can get discounts for one year, maybe you can get discounts for the rest of your life. So I think this is a great flywheel to kind of take folks from being passive to being really involved in the business. And I think you see this in your Teslas, your Wall Street bets, uh, human psychology uh, of folks feeling like they have ownership in something. It just takes them to that super fan mode. Uh, so I think this is super positive for us. Uh, the one thing I will say on the impact side of venture capital, uh, I, my humble opinion with uh, like venture debt, like Pipe um, and, and ClearBank and uh, solo GPs and rolling funds and stuff like that. I think this is all complimentary, right? Airbnb still wants to raise from Sequoia. They still want to raise, DoorDash still wants to raise from Sequoia, but it will be great to have a few thousand or a few hundred thousand kind of stakeholders involved. Um, they still want to use uh, folks like Harlem Capital to be on their cap table. They want to leverage their networks. They want to talk to the founders that they've invested in in the past. They want to talk to the operators and angels that they have connections with. And so I kind of see this almost like the brokerage side. So I can't have Robinhood. I can't have Fidelity. I also may have a little Coinbase. I also might have a little something on BlockFi. BlockFi got a good interest rate. So it's almost like we were talking about low code and no code. You can make your own tech stack. I think founders, at the end of the day, a great founder is a great capital allocator. So that founder is going to want to find different ways to leverage different communities and different pieces of their stakeholders to really scale the business uh, to the next level. And giving those stakeholders the opportunity to participate in the upside, I think, is the biggest thing to see here. And just like we talked about low code, no code, democratizing opportunity. Now you have a bunch of people of color and women and people outside of Silicon Valley who can write a hundred dollar check at the minimum, but maybe maximum $5,000 into these businesses that are private and really have upside when they uh, sell from like an acquisition or when they IPO. And that's just something that we haven't seen before. So super excited about that. By the way, Brandon, if you're going to give a shout out to uh, the founders of uh, BlockFi, you got to say friends of the pod, man. I mean, if you're going to name drop <laughs> famous, successful <laughs> entrepreneurs, you've got to you've got to build that credibility. Friends of 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 Brandon Bryant, aka the pod. <laughs> <laughs> friends of the pod, BlockFi. Shout out to the team. Um, you guys are doing great things. I think even just like a side note, what blockchain and Ethereum is creating, like they're creating the new opportunity for folks to kind of participate in commerce and participate in the ownership economy and that's where the that's where the world is going ownership and democratizing ownership and so i think the um that cultural war that muhan was talking about like folks need to just jump on the bandwagon because that's kind of where it's moving there's so much brandon that you said there that i just could not thumbs up enough um and so i'm i you know i'll i'll actually uh add and uh, attend some more so as listeners to the pod certainly my wonderful uh, intrepid co-host know so my business is uh actually selling premium subscriptions to equity crowdfunding investors who want to know the perspective of someone who has been on the operator side and is currently at myself an equity crowdfunding um investor and it's really interesting because this this space i'm so excited about it like fundamentally what it represents where it's going to go um i started i invested in my first equity crowdfunding company in 2017 
And that company what platform was, was it, by the way? It was it was um, Seed Invest, really kind of, a, in my opinion, the gold standard at that time. And they got bought by Circle. To say it's so interesting because I started off only in startups, but then kind of crypto eating the world. So is 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 literally happening with Circle eating um, Seed Invest. Um, but I think Ryan Fate um, there at the team still has a lot of autonomy. Is doing good work. So I invested in Seed Invest because I knew the company Where by Us. Um, and so Where by Us is a media company that had a local newsletter, and I did not know how to look at a PNL statement. I had no idea what I was doing. The only thing that motivated me was I knew the company. I literally had friends who worked at the company. Every single millennial in Miami that I knew and socialized with was following Where By Us. So when I left Miami to come up to New York to work for Yang, uh, that having that ownership and being able to support with my dollars and have a portion of the business was really meaningful to me. Then kind of a few months later, Jason Calacanis backs them, right? They get into Launch Accelerator. And I'm like, wow, there are people who are wealthy enough that this is all they do full time. That's really interesting. <laughs> and so in 2018 is when I start publishing my own deal memos purely for the sake of writing and, and, and so on and so forth. And that's the story of my business. But to say that though I'm immensely excited about the, the crowdfunding space, I have definitely felt historically, and I think it addresses so many of the points you mentioned, Brandon, but one of them was I definitely felt that VCs look down on equity crowdfunding. And so, you know, as you can imagine, with me and my readers, we're a little bit combative about it. It's like, really, I'm not sure what gives you some kind of a Midas touch. Excuse me, people who backed Juicero. Excuse me, people who backed Quibi, right? Like, hmm, interesting. Elizabeth Are Holmes, you... Theranos. The, oh, <laughs> right? Like, ooh, like, excuse me. <laughs> and, absolutely. And so, I'm not, again, like, I also read, the, you know, I, so my job requires me to regularly assess deal flow from these equity crowdfunding platforms. And I publish them. And then my readers pay me to know kind of what my final personal decision was to invest in. That's how this, this flywheel works. But so I regularly have the incentive and the obligation to read the comments of equity crowdfunding companies. And Gumroad and Backstage Capital have really just like blended these two worlds together in a way that is hysterical and amazing to watch. It is just, it is just truly like, you know, institutional proper button up to wild, wild, wild west meeting for the first time. And, and uh, so much as I am a player in this space, and I'm a, I'm a very small player, but I am a player in this space, um, I will also be the first to acknowledge that there's a lot of chaos that's going to happen in equity crowdfunding. I think that's one of the things you um, kind of hinted at, and I'll, I'll be the first to come out and say it, right? There are so many companies raising on equity crowdfunding platforms that are not venture backable. They should not be raising venture capital. That's totally cool. We have no meaningful way to educate people like, hey, you should be taking venture debt. You're not venture, you're, you will never grow to that scale. You should get like some form of like, you know, equity high interest rate note for whatever it is that you're doing. Oh, you're actually a software company. Oh, wait, one second. You're 20 million pre-revenue, pre-product. I don't think you should get any type of fund. Like those very <laughs> nuanced. Oh, and then your commercial real estate. I actually asked the founder of Republic this question because um, in 2018, Seed Invest came out with a report. I really like put a gauntlet uh, into the cement uh, into the sidewalk, I suppose. Sorry. Very, very good. <laughs> what I'm looking at right now. And so Seed Invest came out and said, hey, our median IRR is 18%. The median IRR of venture capital funds is 11%. No, very few VC funds. I, I, Brandon, I know you have a professional obligation, so you can't say it, but I, I hope that mm -hmm. you're smirking slash, um, you know, sound checking the, the facts I'm giving. I kind of looked at Bessemer. I looked at Sequoia. I looked at A16Z. It's very hard to figure out like what these funds, like how you grade a fund. There's a lot of just hubris. Really, I, I think when I as an individual look at the valley, I do see a great deal of hubris tagged along with, you know, very meaningful 
um, innovation or results. And so I think Bessemer had this slide that I loved. It said, top ranking venture capital fund, 30% IRR. If you're doing that, you're like, you're, you're in rarefied air. You're printing money. People you're, are trying to give you their capital. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like 20 to 30%, like good, but like not, uh, not a home run, not, 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 not like anything to, um, rest on your laurels. Like you deserve to be in the game, but, and then essentially like anything below, uh, 20 and below gets to like, you're barely in business because when you're risk adjusted for what the S and P can do, and then you're thinking of the illiquidity of how much money is being tied up in those capitals, uh, you don't really have anything to be proud of. And so, <laughs> and so, um, like these types of nuanced discussions, I remember asking the founder of Republic, like, Hey, would you publish the IRR? of different investors in different spaces, because I feel like this transparency about what success objectively means would be a huge service to, and, and also legitimize this like taboo area of like, oh, you know, we back early problem solvers. And then, you know, all my founder friends are like, I don't even know what that sentence means anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll pop guy, you know, obviously I'm very passionate about both sides of the space, but Jonathan Brandon, what are your thoughts? Well, it's interesting. I sit a little in between the equity crowdfunding world and the venture world. And I'll explain why in a second with two surprise announcements on the pod, breaking news announcements. Yes, sir. Which oh, you two didn't even know were coming. So this will be fun. But one thing I will say is, you know, I think democratization of options and choice is is best for the marketplace. I want to go back to something Brandon said in terms of he was saying, hey, I think this will be very complimentary to venture. It's not going to disrupt the entire venture industry. And generally, I agree with that. That said, there are definitely venture capital firms and even times in my own adult uh, professional life when we were fundraising for Jebit where if there were more options, I would have raised from other partners or I would have raised in other manners because I think it's not as black and white as this is a venture investable business and this isn't. It may seem to be early on and then doesn't become venture uh, investable. And that's where something like Pipe comes in where I'm really passionate about Pipe because Pipe, for those that don't know, is this new startup that basically wants to be a marketplace that buys your customer contracts and pays you upfront. So if we have an annual contract with a large customer, but they pay us quarterly net 60 days, you know, if that's a million dollar contract, we're getting only a quarter million dollars at a time, 60 days after the quarter ends. What if you could get $950,000 upfront on day one and use that to reinvest in your business? That has massive cash flow implications. So I think, you know, companies that aren't venture investable or start off as, but maybe are experiencing growth challenges or, or maybe don't want to do a priced equity round, crowdfunding, where you can set more of your own terms and, you know, marketplaces like Pipe offer a secondary solution. So I'm really, really passionate about that. This is where a little bit of the surprise announcement comes in. So as you both know, I made a career transition where last year I, I left operating um, uh, Jebit, uh, and I have moved into the space tech industry. So since then, I've been uh, advising and working as a board member of a new crowdfunding equity platform specifically only for space startups. So it's called Spaced Ventures. It launches in a few weeks now that the new crowdfunding rules are in place where we can raise up to $5 million. And it is the world's largest space-only crowdfunding marketplace. So the goal is if you're a space tech company, you're early on, 
and you need to raise a few million dollars because a lot of the times those companies are very capital intensive. You know, you can't get very far on just a million bucks in space. You, you've got to raise four or five million dollars. So anyways, that's dropping in just a few weeks and it's been a really exciting project to be a part of. That's called Space Ventures. And then the secondary announcement, which is even more new, is I have joined the dark side. I have joined Brandon Bryant's side of the table. Uh, I am a solo GP and I'm launching space.vc, which is a rolling fund for space tech companies. So your boy has joined the dark side. Let's go. That oh my gosh, dope. congratulations. Um, yes, congrats on both of those. Um, I'm really pumped about that. Well, first of all, for the crowdfunding platform, Will it be pretty similar to uh, you know, a seed vest or or seed invest or um, what was the other one we were just talking about? Republic um, or Republic any other? Or... Yeah, Republic. Is it going to be more Kickstarter friendly or is it going to be kind of differently unique for the space folks? I'm curious mm -hmm. how you're thinking about that. It'll be unique in the sense of um, there's a lot of what I would say uh, targeting in terms of who we're trying to attract. Uh, we're not necessarily trying to go mass market yet in terms of who we raise funds from, because I think space tech, you need to have a really clear understanding of what the technology application is. Space is very, very risky early on. So we want to stay focused in terms of um, who invests on the platform. Uh, we're, it's also a soft launch. So there's only four startups that are going to be live on day one. It'll be, you know, we took a hundred some applications and instead of allowing all a hundred to list, we went through a, a panel of NASA folks and we narrowed it down to four. So it's highly vetted. It's going to be pretty targeted early on, just a couple million dollars to your point, Brandon. But I think the goal and opportunity is certainly to scale it into the future where people could list on themselves without, you know, a bunch of compliance or us vetting it. Um, and certainly they could just have $5 million every year that they're fundraising now that that is allowed from a regulatory standpoint. And point number two, Will anyone be able to invest in your rolling fund? And is that via AngelList? It is only for accredited investors. This is not a solicitation, but as, <laughs> as, Brandon, <laughs> as Brandon will remind me, that's only for accredited investors. However, I actually uh, found a, a different platform. Um, it's called Allocations. I, I don't have any incentive to give them a shout out, but I, I, just for others that are thinking about starting a rolling fund, I was going to go with AngelList, but I actually had another solo GP steer me in another direction. And he said, I waited three months for AngelList to come back to me. They're slow rolling who can get started because they don't want to inundate their platform, uh, sorry, their mm -hmm. uh, community of angels. So you should really go with Allocations. And Allocations is basically a deep tech, space tech focused version of AngelList for rolling funds. And I was like, wow, that's perfect. That's exactly what I need. So um, I am getting up and rolling with them. That's dope. Um, well, cool. Thanks for, for dropping those uh, first opportunities here uh, in the space industry. I was going to say the space space. Um, <laughs> and I think it's probably a good time to jump into quick hits. Uh, quick hits this week are probably going to be a little longer. Mm -hmm. um, so pumped about that. So jumping into the first two, number one, Rosalind Brewer, who is now going to become the CEO of Walgreens. She is literally the only black woman CEO in the Fortune 500. That is 0.002% of the Fortune 500. That is crazy. And I had also looked up um, black women founders, like how much venture capital that ha have they been receiving over the last two years? And it's 0.27%. 
so I guess it makes sense why there's we 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 always say something at Harlem Capital. You can't be what you can't see. So we hope that folks like Rosalind Brewer, who are becoming CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, will somehow down the line impact the amount of venture capital that goes to Black women CEOs. Uh, and there's a total of four Black CEOs, period, um, in the Fortune 500. So we got a lot of work to do. Hopefully, some of Harlem Capital companies will be in the Fortune 500 in the future, and we'll be kind of changing that face of entrepreneurship. Uh, but excited for her to be an example of what folks who look like her can be in the future. So her, Whitney from Bumble, a few other play, folks in the space are, are really putting on for women right now. Com- completely agree. And I think one maybe note that's really interesting is I think her impact can be even greater because of the type of company that she is the CEO of. Walgreens is uh, very present, f- physically present in all sorts of communities o- across America. They have a massive retail footprint. And so if you want to be the change, um, that you want to see, I think it'll be even more impactful in small local communities where Walgreens can play a big part of that um, versus if she was CEO of, no offense, a semiconductor company or something that maybe mm-hmm. isn't as uh, physically Accessible. present in our day-to-day lives. So really excited for her and uh, well-deserved and, and we need more. Couldn't agree anymore. Yeah. I just, I didn't, I wasn't too familiar with her background, but seeing, I mean, she's a powerhouse, CEO of Starbucks. Background's CEO crazy. Starbucks, president and CEO of Sam's Club, Walmart. You know, one thing before you go on, um, Brandon, is just to also give her a shout out. She's a Detroit native, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Detroit, Midwest. Out, right? Went to Midwest. HBCU. She went to Spelman too. So she's, she's really, um, you know, changing opportunities for folks who kind of come from those Midwest or historically black college backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, cool. Moving on to the second quick hit. Um, I'm not sure if you guys know who Mr. Beast is, but he is a famous gamer and YouTuber. And this week he just launched a venture capital fund. I think this is a pretty huge moment for creators. Uh, Muhan, I know this is uh, going to be a, a big plus for the passion economy that you're working in right now. And with everything going on with NFTs and social money and and folks kind of building tools for creators. I think it makes a lot of sense for creators to fund creators. Uh, JL was just talking about how uh, a lot of these solo GPs are founders who are founding other founders. I think it only makes sense for other creators to be founding other creators. And uh, I would assume that you're going to see quite a bit of uh, creators in the future starting to partner with VC funds or becoming their own solo GPs and really investing in the, the super smart people that they know from the creator space. No, I'm, I'm looking this up right now. It's so funny. Um, you would think that as someone full-time in this field, I should know more of the players, but I'm also discovering, I mean, the joy of the creator and the passion economy is that the growth of more creators is infinite. There's just always a larger community, the more you do. And it's a ton of verticals, right? Like obviously Mr. Beast is um, more YouTube-y, more Mm -hmm. gamey. Obviously there's financial influencers like yourself. Uh, There's like fashion. There's just so many different verticals. Like basically the creator space is like just digital online ecosystem. And it's exactly the same as real life. (laughs) So in real life, you got all these different industries. Um, in the digital space, you have all these different industries as well. 
one of the things that quickly just to riff on what you said, Brandon, you're totally right, is that there's so much research on what is the uh, what is like what are the processes that enable really successful creators. So specifically, who comes to mind is Bob Iger's Right of a Lifetime. I know many people read it; it's very popular. But consistent, and then you look at Pixar, you look at all these books, and they consistently verify that. Feedback is really important from people who are qualified to give feedback. That last one is very important, right? Otherwise, Facts, it's especially in this noise. space. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that like someone who is actually making their money directly getting money from their audience is probably going to be able to better evaluate the next notion or the next air table or the next, you know, um, um, I, forget, I forget what it is that Legion, um, one of my favorite kind of VCs who's um, at Atelier Ventures, she, I think she backed spin, but this idea that there's this tool that helps uh, creators collaborate on YouTube together, then allocate uh, like percentage of attribution so that both get paid a percentage of the YouTube Ooh. videos earnings. Right? No, like so you're like, right. That makes sense. Sounds like split wise before YouTubers. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's like, I wouldn't have, you know, I don't use YouTube that much. I would not have even thought of that as a space. But if you are daily making YouTube videos and you're collaborating with other YouTube um, Influence which is product led growth exactly and the <laughs> two of you are trying to you know you're getting each other's audiences but what if you collaborate on like a big thing right on not something that you can just benefit from the audience just a big project like a 20 minute 40 minute clip then you want to be able to split those revenues in a way that's meaningful and also respects like both of your audiences and whatever have you right and so that that idea is so it like the research backs it and it's it's very cool to to see it you know that truly to what you said you can't be what you can't see like to see it as is a, is a whole nother thing um, Jonathan, please. Well, I think just closing thought is a, a quote that Brandon, you used on the last pod for, for the creator economy and where we're at right now, which is super exciting, which is I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. <laughs> and I think these creators have more of an opportunity than ever to uh, become legitimate, sustainable businesses. And as Mr. Beast is proving with his venture capital firm, enable creators to also invest their uh, revenue and income in uh, in really profitable ways. Yeah, and um, the last quick hit, which may not actually be as quick as we think, is we just wanted to kind of um, talk about what's been going on in the Asian community. I think uh, my heart goes out to that community, especially with the heightened discrimination and hate crimes this year. I was doing some research. They said 3,800 hate crimes against Asians in the last year. And then also the recent news in Atlanta, um, very similar to how I was feeling this time last year around George Floyd. Uh, so I, I think we just wanted to say, uh, we are recognizing what's kind of going on in the space. We wanna pay very close attention here. Um, I strongly urge people not only to have conversations with people who look like them, but conversations with folks in the Asian community to really understand what's kind of going on so that we can prevent these incidents in the future. Um, and I was kind of looking at some of the content creators that I follow who are Asian, and they were just talking about supporting some of the small businesses who have also been hit pretty hard from folks thinking that they could get uh, maybe the virus from going to an Asian restaurant or not wanting to support them because they think that, um, coronavirus is just connected to them being in their um, neighborhood. It's, there's just so many things on a mental standpoint uh, that are really tough here. And then even just like personally hitting home, uh, you know, my girlfriend is Japanese and we've been having uh, strong conversations 
around this. So I think this is just a time to really sit down and have some one-on-one uh, conversations with folks, uh, checking in on folks, supporting these communities, um, and kind of locking arms and and kind of making sure that we're there for folks. Uh, but we'll love to hear if anyone else on the pod had, had thoughts. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate both of you guys, because I'll, for those who are listening who wouldn't have known this, but before the pod, um, I actually kind of opened up and checked in with you guys where uh, last two weeks ago on the previous podcast, um, I had very kind of publicly shouted out my friend who had written a great piece that helped make it much more concrete for me. And um, certainly it's it's very much a education in process. Um, I'll share the story that last summer, I think it was May, when the BLM movement was becoming more active and it was like very top of the nation nation's topics that I was simultaneously, I just finished Michelle Obama's Becoming. And I was about to, I was on, I was about to listen to Barack Obama's Dreams for My Father. And I also recently finished um, All the Things I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. And it was this very surreal moment where uh, I realized just how racial my identity was. Like, why was it that I was reading these books? Oh, because my friends and my family recommended it to me, right? Barack's, um, um, Barack Obama's book was recommended to me by my father. Uh, Michelle, uh, Michelle's book has done amazing, phenomenal, and of course, recommended to me by um, many of my friends. And then Celeste Ng was specifically recommended to me by a Taiwanese-American friend who really uh, kind of was encouraging me to, to read more Asian-American literature. And this, right, like to say uh, that even now thinking about my relation to this happening, I, I, I do feel that my, you know, for my delayed maturation as an Asian male, right? Like I grew up Chinese, I speak Mandarin. No one was like, you're Asian until like I became Asian in the very American context, right? And that, that um, I think Barack Obama writes about it really, really well in his dreams from my father where he was, you know, Kenyan and then, but raised by white grandparents in Hawaii and spent time in Indonesia. And then the first time he had like a black friend was in his late teens and then Occidental, like the, the idea that the racial identity really is, um, both something that is put on us, but also something that we can articulate and then make ours. Um, it's 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 very much kind of a ongoing journey. Um, and yeah, I, I, I appreciated being able to check in with both of you to say like, you know, I certainly as an Asian American male don't like to think of myself as like the Asian guy or like the race guy, especially in my writing, right? Um, but how that intersects and how that informs the reality of how I create uh, is very is very undeniable, and I, it's 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 still something I wrestle with about how much I want to publicly identify with that, with the you know the reality that as a as as my existence is I've been shaped by a set of experiences that inform how I think and create and invest. Um, so yeah, thanks to you two for for kind of hearing me out at the beginning and sound checking and saying like, no, you can you can open up about this on the pod. You know, it's a, it's a little bit more I think human and less kind of like capitalistic than our uh, popular themes. And I think it's important just to talk through as we're all processing this um, in our different ways. And I'll share this if it's all right, Muhan. This is something you had said before the pod. You said, you know, to the effects of this this past week was really racial, was really racially charged. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you identified with that. And, and Brandon, you made a comment back, which I thought was appropriate and profound, which was every week is. And I think that is something that just as a as a as a white male in America, 
just reminds you of your privilege. And a lot of the times when you talk about white privilege, um, it, obviously it is a charged topic because people naturally will get defensive about, well, nothing was given to me. I've, I've worked hard. I, I've earned this and that. But I think what this week shows is in speaking with many of uh, my Asian American friends and also just seeing honest posts online, people talking about being afraid to go to the grocery store and just walking outside in downtown San Francisco, in downtown New York, in downtown Boston. And, and that's sad. That just breaks my heart. And that that's a, a reminder that white privilege and what I oftentimes enjoy is not an added benefit, but it is not. it is a lack of an additional burden that I have to be concerned about. If I, after this podcast, go to the grocery store right now, for the most part, I am not concerned about my own well-being. And it, and it breaks my heart and it's super sad that other folks, other friends, you, Muhan, may have to be concerned. That is even a thought across your mind. So it, it's sad for the country. You know, on one hand, I'm not surprised, but on the other hand, I am. It's a new level of disappointment. You know, these, all of these ethnic slurs, it feels like, you know, insults that you might hear on a playground with kids. You know, it's it's immature, it's childish, and unfortunately to have it be exacerbated at the highest levels of government over the past few years and just culturally be a part of who we are as, you know, Americans right now, it's just a lot to process. And so I don't I don't know that I have a good answer for for not only how we move forward, but just how I personally, you know, can be impactful in this. There are the small things, obviously, reaching out to those you care about, speaking out when you see something wrong, supporting local Asian businesses and entrepreneurs and, and, and folks in your community. But it feels like just such a much more profound and complex issue that, um, you know, today I, I just feel sad about it. And um, you know, I, I wish everyone uh, well and, and hope the violence comes to an abrupt ending as soon as possible. Yep, I totally agree. I think we we spoke our hearts on that one. So appreciate that from the full team. Uh, moving on to our next segment, our last segment, uh, we'll have some winners, losers, and content. I can go first. I'll just go through all three of mine and then hand it off to the team. Winners on my side, digital communities and creators. Over the last six to 12 months, blockchain and Ethereum has given you an opportunity to own a piece of a person, to own a piece of a community, or to actually put a store of value on social capital, which has been invisible literally for hundreds of, for a hundred years. Social capital has been invisible and now it is becoming uh, somewhat physical. And you have folks like uh, Beeple who has just sold that $60 million uh, digital asset on Christie's. Uh, you have Terry Crews who just did a token, a uh, social token of currency. So I just think that uh, the 2020s will be um, roaring specifically for uh, creators and digital communities. Um, and then I, I did have an honorable mention, if you're in crypto and you like Cardano, you had a big week this week uh, because <laughs> Cardano is uh, now supported and available to trade on Coinbase. On my losers this week, man, I really think right now society might be somewhat of a loser right now this week. I think one, just because of these, uh, the recent um, incidents that happened in the Asian community. I think on top of that, I'm not sure if folks watched The Bachelor this week, but there was very 
very racial, very split between white and black or man, women, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we, we just really need to come together um, and support people just like we did in the Black Lives Matter movement. So I think corporations, um, organizations, small communities and individuals, we just really need to kind of lock arms and, and work together on this one. And then lastly, on a content perspective, uh, this week I've been pretty heads down on uh, a lot of work. So I've been listening to music and I'm a big, like big Sean fan. And I was like, man, there's a lot of new Detroit rappers coming out. And I've been really listening to T Grizzly and that's T-E-E -E, Grizzly. And his album is so good. His last like two or three albums are so good. So if you have a chance, you got some downtime, you're cranking, go and put on that T Grizzly, his last few albums. I love that. I'm always looking for a good rap recommendation. So check out T Grizzly. He's on uh, SoundCloud or Spotify? Spotify? He's on Spotify, man. He's, he's killing it. Awesome. Well, let's see. My winners of the week. I'm actually going anyone in the U.S. who wants a vaccine. I think we continue to be met with really good news. Um, Biden announced that by May 1st, um, any, he's instructing the states to allow any U.S. adult who wants a vaccine to, to at least schedule their vaccine. Many states, um, you know, my home state of Massachusetts and, and, and my parents' home state of Ohio, both moved up the timetables and announced, you know, in, in next week and the week after, anyone 16 and older will be able to get the vaccine. Of course, there's going to be a, a scheduling component and there's challenges there. But in general, I think anyone who wants a vaccine will be able to get both doses of their vaccine by June, maybe July at the latest, which has massive positive implications for the country. And, and we are very blessed in the U.S. because many countries, even, even first world nations, uh, do not have the luxury of vaccine availability, as we talked about on the pod the other week. So those are my winners for the week. Losers, Anyone who did a March Madness bracket, I'm sorry, but it's already busted. First of all, you got number two, Ohio State losing in very painful, dramatic fashion. That was close to Brandon in my heart. And also very Purdue, close. big upset last night. And so of the 90 plus million brackets that have been submitted online, only 109 are still correct after the first day of play. So massive upsets all around. No one's going to get the perfect bracket this year, unless one of those 109 get lucky the rest of the way out, but unlikely to be the case. And lastly, for my content of the week, The Lost Pirate Kingdom on Netflix. I don't know how much you two know about pirate history. You, you, you're a Netflix buff, man. I love it. <laughs> hey, <laughs> don't judge. I, I don't spend all my time on there, I promise. But <laughs> when I do... I spend it on parts of history that I did not know a lot about. So I don't know how much you two know about the history of privateering or pirates specifically, but there may be more truth to the Pirates of the Caribbean than you originally suspected. So I recommend you watch The Lost Pirate Kingdom. It's a docu-series, six episodes on Netflix if you're interested. What a hook, man. You are just pitching that better than they are. I've never heard of this before. Holy, holy smokes. Oh, man. All right. Uh, on my side, I shall uh, quickly wrap us up with our winners and losers in content. So for winners, um, I want to shout out Li Jin at uh, Atelier Ventures for selling her collab art piece with her childhood artist friend for $25,000 of Ethereum. 
Uh, I first got acquainted with Li Jin uh, through her collab piece with Andrew Chen at A16Z, where they wrote this piece called "The Future of Managed Marketplaces." To my friends, I joked, I was like, "This is this is this this piece should be called the Road to a Trillion Dollars." I mean, it's just like it's like if you've ever needed a business idea, it's like you just go, you just pick it, and then you just do your thing, and then they'll back you, and then you know everyone will sail off into the sunset. So really, um, <laughs> really, really shout out to her. She's killing it. Uh, have, have, it's been fascinating to watch the transformation of her work. And um, certainly, you know, if, at the most shallow level, she sold a set of pixels for $25,000, <laughs> right? But that's, that's, that's to the untrained eye, to, to someone who understands that there is this larger movement, right? Identity, culture, beliefs, all these things are things that you cannot actually touch and sell, right? What you said earlier, Brandon, about the monetization of social capital, this is it. This is the beginning of it. You know, it's going to be messy. Uh, kind of even from the equity crowdfunding space side, uh, whenever you're doing anything innovative, you're just gonna have tons and tons of tons of mess um, in this new space. But um, true creative work calls for it. And I think Legion and her artist collaboration partner are um, certainly on the winners uh, in my book. Loser side, really quickly, British royal family. Sorry, dudes. Like stiff upper lip does not do anything. Mental healthness is like what I forgot about that. <laughs> right? No, I know. Just so much was going on. Those these Oprah last memes two weeks. were so good. They were so good. So good. By the way, so did you good. see the the TikTok of uh, someone who took a, a a snippet from a Bruno Mars song back in the day where he says, "I want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine, smiling next to Oprah and the Queen," and people are like, "Oh, that's not going to happen anymore." <laughs> oh, <laughs> that <laughs> oh, wow. is too savage no like one point it's it's funny because like you know i i i appreciate it i get it you're a royal family it's a monarchy i'm sorry lots of people hate the british for like really good reasons like a really brutal legacy of uh not brutal i shouldn't say just brutal but very a long complicated history of colonialism and uh among which like just this culture asians from my chinese culture and i think oftentimes representative of asian cultures we are not the best at talking about mental health right totally get it however to not talk about these incredibly complex things that shape our beliefs, how we act in the world and how we make decisions is to be on the losing side of history. Let me be very clear here, right? If at this point you're not, um, you know, and it doesn't have to be public, I understand. You know, I, I remember roasting the British royal family a little bit because they're such a public thing and they also get untold amounts of money to be a brand of a family, right? That's essentially what they are. They're, they're, they, their family is a lifestyle brand, right? Um, so yeah, so like, I'm sorry, if you're getting paid that much amount of money, you have to do your job and doing your job means you do have to model some of these really kind of more productive behaviors and ways of thinking about, um, how we as humans have come to how we exist in the world and, and, and ways that we can upscale that. So, um, hope, hope things can get better there. I certainly wouldn't want my family drama all out in the public. Um, but, uh, there's definitely opportunities and, and ways for us to get work. And, uh, on the content side, I'll say this, um, uh, not to kind of beat a dead horse, but, um, and the New York Times did do a good, I think, summary of uh, the timeline of a lot of this um, Asian American violence that's going on in Georgia. Cryptically, uh, I shouldn't say cryptically, but interestingly enough, that the name of the title is called New York Times, um, New York Times, The Daily. The New York Times has a podcast called The Daily. The episode is called A Murder Rampage in Georgia. So even kind of like act, like reacting in real time, right? Is this a hate crime? What makes it a hate crime? If you target Asian massage parlors, does that de facto make you committing a hate crime or do you somehow get away with saying that you're a sex addict who wanted to attack the assault, right? Like that's that... Um, so there, there is very real, uh, I think, debate that is worth kind of having about all those issues. But even before you can get to that level, when I heard it, I thought that it was a very, it reflected my experience of kind of first hearing about the news and then like 
in my mind kind of clicking to say, wait, okay, this should be something I should take more seriously. And then finally, um, with I think the Atlanta uh, shootings taking place to say like, oh, wow, okay, the nation has now recognized this as something we need to take and talk uh, seriously about. So uh, for anyone who's kind of new to the discussion, just catching up, feeling like you have a lot to catch up on, I thought that that episode from the New York Times, The Daily, um, a murder rampage in Georgia did a really good job. So. Well, I appreciate both of you uh, in general, but I think especially on this episode, um, just a good reminder of what having uh, great friends and a support community uh, can mean for for weeks like this. And I know that's easy for me to say, Um, but I really enjoyed this episode. I think this was um, probably our best episode to date and and certainly came from the heart uh, for, for all the right reasons. So this has been episode three of the First Money End podcast, the podcast for knowledge seekers and risk takers. And we will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in.